following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I think it's important to keep moving in this book that we believe that God has, um, has been leading us through to learn. And for some of you, you are, uh, this is going to be a, a quick introduction to the book of Daniel. Uh, as we are now on uh, chapter 5, and we're in the historic uh, narrative part uh, of this book. And so we are going to uh, pick up and look at a very weighty topic today. This isn't light and fluffy, and, but it is one that is of incredible importance to us. It's asking the question, at the end of the day, when you stand before God and you're weighed and measured, will you be found wanting or will you be found acceptable to him? Evangelism Explosion, which was a powerful ministry and continues to be, would ask a couple of simple questions. Say, if you died tonight, where do you think you would go? And almost everybody says they'd go to heaven. And a fascinating study recently uh, was done of people who believe that they are going to go to heaven. And I heard some interviews recently about uh, this as well. That in their description of heaven, none of them uh, were professing believers. None of them associated with the church. And in their description of heaven, it was very fascinating that heaven was just an extension of what they found to be paradise on earth. And it was a godless place because there was no mention of God. But heaven is the atmosphere of God's existence. And so it's impossible to have a concept of a true heaven without a true concept of God. And so if you answered that question and you said, well, I'm going to go to heaven, the next question that would come your way uh, would be simply this. When you do go and you're standing before God and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that question? For many people, it would be, I'm a good person. I go to church on Sunday morning. I, I came and cut down trees for people that I didn't know. I gave money uh, to the church. I'm, uh, I'm good. I'm surely better than that person next to me or the person near me. I'm, I'm a good person. They're measured. And if that's the answer that you normally give, then you will be found wanting at the end of the day. And I want you today to hear from God's word and not be found wanting. To be able to know the true answer to that question is the reason that anybody should be let in to God's heaven is because of the completed and perfect work of Jesus Christ on their behalf and nothing else. Nothing else. And so we come this morning to Daniel, chapter 5. And we pick up with the history of this great kingdom. The kingdom may be one of the greatest, if not the greatest kingdom of the ancient Near East, the Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled for decades, had built up. With, he had brought in the Tigris into the city, the river, with all of its glory and beauty and made the hanging uh, gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the world. That there was rule and there was authority and there was strength within it. And we saw a few weeks ago when Andrew preached and taught uh, about Nebuchadnezzar who had experienced God's uh, dream of one day the kingdom is going to be taken from him. He's going to die, but it didn't turn his heart. 
And he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And he saw them saved by God in the furnace. And it didn't turn his heart. But we, what we saw in chapter 4 was God brought Nebuchadnezzar to the end of himself, even to a place of insanity, uh, of losing his mind, uh, and was in this desolation for a season and a time. And God brought him back. And within chapter 4, we see him confessing and believing in God. I stand as one who believes that we get to see Nebuchadnezzar again one day. You don't have to agree with me on that, but I believe that his confession is true. And that's an incredibly hopeful confession. Because if Nebuchadnezzar can come to faith, guess who else can? Anyone. And it's absolutely arrogant for any person to say that someone else can't come to faith because of what that says about your own heart is that your sin is less. And it took less grace and less Christ to save you. And it would take more to save them. The same Christ, the same faith, the same grace that saved Nebuchadnezzar is available to you today. And that's what we're going to look at. And it gives us great hope for every one of your loved ones, for your neighbor who has no interest in the gospel, that you never know what God can do when he puts his spirit to work in the life of an individual. So today, travel back with me to a party a raucous pagan party into chapter 5. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, would you bless now the reading and the hearing of your word? Would we see Christ in your beauty? Would we be challenged even to come to the end of ourselves that we would turn, that we would bend the knee and that we would believe and at the end of the day when we are weighed and we're measured that we would not be found wanting. To Christ be the glory. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. So what we're stepping into is a party, a party that's going on. And within the context of this party, this human pagan party, God intervenes. God shows up on the scene, and within this we have a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn from history, and what we're going to learn today 
is we're going to see a few things. One, and the primary thing is the problem that we all face. And the problem that we all face is the arrogance of the human heart. That the human heart at its very core is prideful and arrogant. But then what we're going to see is that God graciously intervenes into the lives and to the hearts of arrogant and prideful people. And then we're going to look at the possible solutions, counterfeit solutions, for what happens when God intervenes. For we realize we have to do something, and the world offers a lot of counterfeits to what we really should do. And then those counterfeits we're going to expose and find the result of them. And then finally, we're going to see the true solution that we find in Christ alone. And if you're looking at your watches, we're not going to be done right at noon. <laughs> but we'll be done close enough uh, to that. But I think it's important that we hear these things. Because here's the reality. Belshazzar was throwing a party. It was a big party. And what was exposed within this party was Belshazzar's heart. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but Belshazzar uh, was not the direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a pretender to the throne. Uh, that his father uh, was Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was, had uh, the king ahead of him assassinated, and the king ahead of him had had somebody else assassinated. And so uh, who uh, Belshazzar was, was the son of Nabonidus. And Nabonidus served the sin, uh, god called Sin, interestingly enough. And the, mainly the lords and the rulers of Babylon served the god Marduk. And so there was tension, shockingly enough, within the Middle East, there was tension and factions within religious groups. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun. I don't mean that in laughing mode. It's really true. It's been going on throughout all of history. And if we think that political means are going to fix religious things, we're naive and crazy. And so what you see is these things are going on. And so Nabonidus was outside of the city. He was living in another place. And uh, his son there, Belshazzar, was the acting and ruling regent within uh, Babylon. And what you find in the midst of this first part of the story is you find this, that all human hearts wrestle with arrogance. Or put another way, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. That the problem is our hearts. You see, historically what you see a little bit in here is the arrogance uh, of Belshazzar because he's throwing a party. A thousand of the lords were there. It was a feast. There was everybody there. And this guy was so arrogant that he invited all of his wives. So he had a plurality of wives, which in general is just craziness to think of. All of that happens there. And then he decided to bring in all of his sex slaves, his concubines in and so there were all of these people, all the lords that were there, and they're drinking and they're having a party. And you may think, that seems reasonable. He's a king. He can do that. It's Babylon. But guess what happened just a little day, a few days earlier? His father, Nabonius, had been defeated by the Persians just outside the city. He knew that the Persians were on the way. He knew that the Medes uh, were uh, right uh, there. And yet he throws a party because he stood in his arrogance, knowing this, ha, no one can get inside Babylon. It's an impenetrable city. The river Tigris comes through, but we've put gates down so that no one can come in through the city. And what he didn't realize was that the Persians outside of the city had dug a canal and they diverted a large part of the river Tigris. 
And they, they drop the water level to such a level that the assassins or the spec ops of the Persian army had come in under the cover of night and had already infiltrated the city. They were there and he threw a party. The human arrogance of the man was palpable. That when he should have been a king, he was a frat boy. When he should have been a leader, he was chugging beer. When he should have been standing out in front and standing at the gates, he was back in the party hall with the mixtape and the dancing going. So the historic context shows an arrogance of Belshazzar. That was unbelievable. But then there's a spiritual context too. The party takes a little bit of a turn. Belshazzar's there and they're all drinking and he's had a couple of beverages it seems. And then in the middle of it he decides this. Hey, somebody go to the treasure house. Somebody go to the storerooms and get me those gold and, and silver goblets and all of that stuff that came from this Jewish God Yahweh. That came from Jerusalem. I want those to be brought in. And they were brought in. And they were filled with wine that had been blessed by the pagan gods. And he drank it. And he sang praises to the gods of gold and of silver and of wine. And all of his wives and all the prostitutes and all of the other lords were drinking out of those sacred vessels. Some of which which had held the blood of the Paschal Lamb and taken into the Holy of Holies to represent the blood of Christ the Messiah who was coming. And what he was saying was simply this. The God of Jerusalem is dead. I am greater than the God of Jerusalem. And what he didn't realize, that he was singing praises to gods who had no ears to hear. And he was taunting a God who not only had ears to hear, but power to respond. The arrogance of the human heart. You just want to go, when you saw that happening, to Belshazzar and go, I get the party. I get your stupidity of not thinking about the Persians. Don't mess with Yahweh. Don't you remember the stories that you heard of Daniel and of Shadrach and of Meshach and Abednego? Don't you remember those things? Don't kick this lion. He bites. My roommate, I've told you, he used to have a, in college, had a very large boa constrictor. And he liked to eat. The boa constrictor, that is. My roommate, too. But we would have feeding parties. And of course, they like live animals to feed upon. And I still remember one. Yeah, I, still, I hate snakes. Uh, and I remember one gerbil that they put in, and the boa was asleep over on his heating rock. And that little gerbil went over to the boa constrictor, bit it on its nose. <laughs> Just like, come on. We're all going, dude, you do not know what you're messing with. And sure enough, a moment later, the gerbil met the boa constrictor in a different way. The arrogance of the human heart is basically shaking your fist at God and saying, bring it on. That I can handle you. That I don't need you. That I can taunt you. That I'll treat you as my private servant. That I'll, I'll ring my bell when I need you. And I need you to come and rescue my marriage. I need you to come and rescue my finances. I need you to come and rescue my grades in school. I need you to come and intervene. I need you to do something. But then when you're done, I need you to get the heck out and go back to your storage shed over there. And I'll call you when I need you. Or the arrogance goes something like this. God, everything in my life is messing up. 
and I'm going to make some empty promises that I'll never do it again, and I'll go to church again, and I'll all this up again, and I need you to fix my cancer, and I need you to fix my marriage, and I need you to fix my kids, and the kids go, I need you to fix my parents, and I need all of this stuff fixed, and if God doesn't answer in the way that we've determined that has to be answered our plan, then we say to God, not only do you need to go back to your room, you need to just go ahead and leave the premises. The arrogance of the human heart is so palpable, but the danger of the arrogant heart is this, it hides itself better than any other sin. You've heard me say it before, I have never in my entire life of ministry had a person knock on my door and say, Pastor, I need you to pray for me. I need to keep meeting with you because I'm an arrogant man. I am a prideful person. And I need the help of you and the Holy Spirit to work in my life. I've never once had a person do that. Now, I've had plenty of people knock on the door and go, help me with this arrogant person I'm married to. Help me with this arrogant parent that you gave me, this arrogant kid that you gave me, the arrogant co-worker that I have, the arrogant culture that I have, the arrogant candidates that we have. Everybody's arrogant except you. And the reason that is, is because arrogance needs to be exposed from the outside because you can't see it on the inside. No one finds themselves to be arrogant. And we never repent of it. And it blinds us. C.S. Lewis said this, show me a man who says that he's not prideful and I'll show you a prideful man indeed. So here, the problem of the human heart is a blinding arrogance of the human heart. And many of you are wrestling with that today of thinking that maybe you don't need God, that you have all that you need, and at the end of the day, you're going to measure up. And by the way, you may measure up better than the person sitting next to you. But folks, when we lived in the mountains and there were bears around, someone told me, here's what you need to know about a bear. If it chases you, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the other person that's with you. <laughs> that doesn't work to get to heaven. You don't just have to outrun the other person in your goodness. So what do we do? Well, the beauty of this story is that God graciously intervenes. He sends his hand upon the wall. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the walls of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked, and the hand wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Ah, right there in the, I, I wish we had time to go into this, but they found the ruins of the castles of Babylon and the walls were whitewashed. And so the king and the Lord's hand had come in and it wrote on the wall, God was graciously intervening into the arrogance of this man to show him, hey, I'm not one to be trifled with. I believe God even was offering him the opportunity to hit his knees, hit his face on the ground, and go, I repent and I believe. Maybe he still would have lost his life physically that night, but he wouldn't have lost it eternally. But God intervened, and he rode on the wall, and it brought Belshazzar to the end of himself. God challenged Belshazzar's arrogance and his ignorance by exposing himself and speaking into the situation. And some of you can relate to that. That God comes and he speaks into our arrogance. He finds us and he brings us to a place at the end of ourselves. That is a gracious gift of God. It is a severe mercy for God to bring you to the end of yourself. 
And some of you are fighting and kicking and screaming all along, saying, no, no, no. And the terror is that you don't know what's going to be left at the end. But I want to tell you this, Christ is at the end. And you don't get Christ at the end until you come to the end of yourself. Belshazzar was about there. I love the language. He saw the hand and his color changed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cosmic hand writing on the wall. I, my color would change. I would be very different. And his thoughts alarmed him. I imagine that was true as well. Holy cow! Or holy whatever that they would say there. Oh my gosh! Ah! And then in the English it says, and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. In the Aramaic, it says that the knots of his loins became untied. <laughs> Proud, arrogant king, drinking, girls, women, all of this stuff. Ah! <laughs> God humiliated and humbled him, not just to make a spectacle of him, but to say this, in my presence you cannot stand. And I am not a God to be trifled with. You do not know what you did when you grabbed those vessels for you were not just degradating the vessels, you were degradating me. You were not just mocking my house and my name, you were mocking me. You were not just rejecting these things, you were rejecting me. But I'm so gracious that I will intervene into your life to let you know that. So that maybe you'll turn. And you'll turn and you'll go, I'll go with that God. Because the last time I imagine Belshazzar checked, none of his gold and his silver and his goblets spoke and wrote on walls. But the God that he mocked did. And some of you have experienced that in your own lives. That God has graciously intervened as he's brought you to the end of yourself. Bringing you to the end of all of your arguments. Bringing you to the end of the things that you put your faith in. And so the question and the challenge becomes when you get to that end, when you get to that crossroads, where are you going to turn? Well, there are counterfeit solutions to this. The counterfeit solutions come from the world and our culture, and they are found and proven insufficient. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads these writings, I'm going to give you a bunch of money. I'm going to give you all of this stuff. You're going to be third in line in the kingdom. And then all the king's men, wise men, came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king and the interpretation. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. They came in and all they did was they proved who they were. Because you see, we know these wise men, don't we? They didn't do real well on dream interpretation earlier with Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't do well with Daniel. They didn't do well with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Belshazzar refused to turn to the Lord of Daniel. He knew Daniel. We know that by the queen's words. He knew of Daniel. And he knew of Daniel's God. And he knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew the truth and rejected the truth. And he went back to the ways of the world. He went back to his old solutions. And folks, for many of you, that's what's happening in your life. 
Life is coming to a crisis. You're experiencing the same things again and again. God is bringing you to the end of yourself. And instead of turning to a new way, to Christ himself, to God himself, you're turning back to the old things, to the old addiction, to the old ways of doing it. You're going back to your anger, back to your control, back to whatever drug of choice it is for you. Back to your wealth, back to your reputation. You're going back there and you're saying, this is going to be my savior. This is going to be my life. And here's what I want you to do. If you're turning to anything other than Christ, here's what I want you to do today. I want you to investigate, to identify it today. Identify it. We all have different forms of it. One for me is control and anger. I like peace. I want peace. If I can just get peace in my home, peace in my world, then things are going to be okay. When I'm brought to the end of myself and everything's going bad, just give me peace, dadgummit. Just be quiet. And let daddy rest. And you know what I find out about that peace? It'll get quiet in my home. But I've destroyed Lisa and I've destroyed my boys. I've destroyed you. Because I go back. I go back to an old cistern that's hewn with human hands. And I try to draw out living water from it. And it's not there. And it disappoints me again and again and again. I don't know what yours is, but you can identify it. It could be pornography. It could be clothes. It could be changing your look. It, it could be reputation. It could be all of those things in any shape or form. So I want you to identify them. But here's the next step, folks. Interrogate it. Don't just identify it. Interrogate it. Say to me, for me, I would say, okay, peace, at any cost. What have you given me? Have you really given me peace? Have you really given me satisfaction? Have you really given me, what does it cost me to pursue you? Maybe it was reputation. Maybe it was being liked by everybody. Maybe it was all of this. Maybe it was having to become the life of the party. Maybe it was the teenage boy who was the preacher's kid who went away to college and was going to be the best fraternity boy that there was who could out drink, out smoke, and outdo anybody. But when I finally investigated and interrogated that way of finding myself, I realized this, there's absolutely no peace in that. I have to keep going. You have to be better the next day. You have to do more and challenge more and be crazier more. There's never any peace in the middle of that. Someone's always going to dislike you. You realize that, people pleaser. Hate to break it to you today. Someone's always going to dislike you. And you can't do anything about it. And so you have to identify and then you have to interrogate all the insufficient ways of the world to try to give yourself life. You see, Belshazzar finally did look at Daniel and he called him in. I don't have time to read it, but in verses 13 to 16, he used language like this. Oh, you are that Daniel. You're that Daniel from those people that Nebuchadnezzar had in prison and exile. He may have looked to Daniel, but he never believed. He may have looked around and said, oh, you're one of those Christians. You're one of those people that actually believes in God. You're one of those church people. You're one of those Bible-believing people. You see, there's counterfeit solutions all over the place. And people may even turn to the church, and it becomes a counterfeit solution to you. That if you just get righteous enough before God, then it'll be okay. So as we wrap up a couple of thoughts, what's the result of turning 
to those counterfeit ways. What are the results? Verse 24, then from his presence the hand was sent, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 30, and that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You see, we can mock God, and we can reject him, and reject his word, continually run after solutions for our lives that do not have the power to save. We stand firmly upon our pride and our arrogance, and we believe that we have enough, that we're good enough at the end of the day to stand before God. And I want you to hear these words, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. You're going to be weighed in the balance. And those are words uh, of, of coinage that goes down smaller and smaller, a mina, a shekel, and a half shekel. And it says at the end of the day this, your good works and all of your arrogance and all of your humanism and all of your legalism and all of your morality and the fact that you've never had a drink in your life and you never danced and you never chewed and you never dated anybody who did and you read your Bible every day and you gave your money off of the gross and not the net and you served during the week and you cut down some trees and you stayed faithful to your spouse throughout the course of your life that you provided a good safe home for your family and that your dad gummed a good person. Mene, mene, tekel and parson. It's not good enough at the end of the day. It's light and not weighty in the balances of the king and the judge. That's heavy stuff. And I want you to hear it today because I want you to know the end. It's important for you to know the end so that you can turn. You can turn and bend the knee and that you don't have to go there but you this day can turn to Christ because that's the ultimate solution. All of us will be weighed in the balance one day for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for him, what is done in the body, whether good or evil. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that becomes the judgment. I don't say that to scare you, I say that to love you. It's loving for me to tell you that one day you're going to face your creator and you're going to have to give account of the life that you're living and that you lived and account for the life and all of what he had given to you. And he's going to weigh you. And he's going to ask, do you have enough? And the sad matter, as Max Lucado says, when Christ comes, he says, I'm going to blow the trumpet and the trumpet shall sound and that many will come and they'll say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Isn't it fascinating that when Christ sounds his trumpet, we show up and we honk our own horn and we read our resumes. Didn't I go to prison for you? Didn't I go and serve the poor for you? Didn't I do this? And he goes, you don't get it. It's not your resume. It's mine that counts. So here's the final solution. Here's where we'll wrap up. It's this. There is one that you can turn to. He was weighed. He was divided he was crushed, and at the end of the day, he was found not wanting. 
He was found glorious and righteous and weighty. And the Father weighed him in the balance, that is, Christ his own Son. And he took the weight of his glory and the weight of his beauty and the weight of his righteousness. And you know what he did with it to you when you came to faith and believed in him? He implanted it in you. You're the glory of Christ. Do you know that? The glory of God dwells in you. The word glory means weightiness. Folks, don't take lightly the deposit that has been made in your heart through Christ. For it is that deposit, it is that which will allow you to stand in the judgment. That's good news, by the way. And if you're here today and you haven't bent that knee, that you've seen the writing on the wall and you know that you should, but you keep waiting and waiting and waiting, don't wait another day. Don't wait another day. Because guess what? Did Belshazzar think he was going to die the day he planned that party? Absolutely not. But he did. His life was accounted for that night. Folks, I don't know what's waiting for you outside the door. I don't know what's waiting for you the next moment or me the next moment. And so what we are promised is not tomorrow. For it says that all of life is like a vapor in a dream that's here for now and then gone in a moment. And so while we have breath, would you breathe the life that God has given you in Christ? That's my plea to you today and my invitation to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have intervened in our lives in the midst of a storm, in the midst of our health, our marriages, whatever, our families. And what you've done is you brought us to the end of ourselves. And I pray that for some who are wrestling with that reality right now, that for the very first time they would bend the knee. And sitting right there, they would believe in you. And they would call upon your name. And they would repent of taking lightly the things that you cared about and of your name. And what they would receive would be the weight of glory. Christ himself given to them and so that whether they die tonight or in a hundred years they would stand before you glorious and perfect invited in not by their works but by the completed and perfect work of Christ done on their behalf a gift of grace through faith father bless us we pray and we ask that as we sing we would recognize that all I have is Christ hallelujah Jesus is my life. Let's stand and sing.